All right, well, it's good to see everybody tonight. Can I have you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? Now, as we've been studying Peter's first epistle, as we have seen, he opens his epistle by encouraging us to keep our eyes on the coming of the Lord. Why? Because that will help us to have strength and find grace to endure trials in this life. Very important. Something that, uh, well, a lot of churches today aren't teaching the coming of the Lord. Not that they don't believe it, per se. They're just not teaching prophecy. Many don't even believe in the rapture, but, uh, and I think that's what Peter is, is referring to, uh, the rapture. But um, this used to be the staple of the church where people would be taught, look, you keep your eyes on things above, you work with all your heart here in the earth, but the hardships and trials you go through, understand they're only a short while, as Paul said, and they're working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How do you handle the trials? You keep your eyes uh, on eternity. And that's really what he's doing here, and that's how he opens his epistle. In fact, in verse 3, as we've already read, but I'll read it again, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And I believe that what's in view is the rapture, all right, where our salvation is complete, where our bodies are finally redeemed, our soul Spirit are redeemed, but our body is still product of the fall, and um, the Lord tarries. It's going to die eventually and return back to the dust of the earth. But of course, if we make it to the rapture, uh, we don't have to worry about anything anymore. But anyways, so he, he wants us to keep, you know, you, you got this inheritance waiting for you. It's incorruptible, undefiled. It's awesome. Keep your eyes on that. But then we come to verse 13, and we see the word, therefore, therefore which means that Peter is now going to make application to our lives from the spiritual truths he has just talked about. And basically it works like this. Here's what's waiting for you in heaven. Keep your eyes on that, but now here's how you got to live on the earth right now. Grammatically, as we said last time, the entire first chapter of Peter's epistle revolves around the admonition in verse 13, rest your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Now, of course, guys, and we, again, we're just reviewing from last time, but, of course, that command is preceded by his equally important command to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded. As we said last week, when Peter commands us to do this, he is saying that we are not to put ourselves under the influence. He talks about sober-minded, right? We're not to put ourselves under the influence of anything the God of this world, the devil, will try to use to intoxicate us, to move us away from God and the work of God. You can get drunk a lot of different ways. The idea of being drunk is being under the influence, right? We, you know, police, when they pull a person over that's been drinking, uh, write him a ticket, he's under the influence. Well, you're not in your right mind. You're letting some other outside force control you. Now, we are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we uh, don't let anything that the devil tries to dangle in front of us influence us to move away from God and the work of God. 
the classic passage on this, you don't have to turn to it. I'll read it to the NLT. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, where John says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, and, and he's talking about the world system, not the planet Earth, all right? The world system of which the God of this world, Satan, is in control of. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God, in other words, the will of God, will live forever. Guys, this is, the. it doesn't seem like it as you read this, but let me just say this to you. This is classic spiritual warfare. Classic spiritual warfare. As we said last time, war, spiritual warfare primarily is being waged in the mind for control of the way people think. That's what John's talking about. The devil wants you to love the world and the things of the world. Why? Because they'll move you away from God. They'll influence you in a negative way. This is We think of spiritual warfare as demonic possession and, and casting out demons. Well, that's a small part of it. Every day, though, people don't realize that they are being attacked in the way in their thinking through all the stimuli around them, which is the devil's trying to use to plant thoughts in their heads that will influence them away from God toward him and the life he wants you to lead. The devil knows if he can control the way a person thinks and, of course, uh, what they lust after, mainly the idea, he can control the way they live. In essence, he will be able to make them his slaves to do his bidding. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. In 1 John 2, John lays out what spiritual warfare really looks like for the most part. Here in 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells us how to deal with it, how to fight it. And really, guys, we're fighting for souls. That really is what spiritual warfare is all about. We are called by God to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. What are, we, what are we saying? We're saying rescue people from the devil, the power of God's word. Rescue people from the devil to bring them out of darkness into his marvelous light, the Lord's light, right? And um, realizing that the people of this world that the devil uses against us to persecute us, revile us, and all this nasty stuff, they're not our enemies. They're not our enemies. Paul makes it clear, 2 Timothy 2, starting with verse 23. He said, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. You're not going to argue somebody in the kingdom. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So unbelievers are not our enemies, pornographers, Hollywood, the liquor industry, gaming industry, they're not our enemies. People have been taken captive by the devil to be involved in these things. Sure, they're destroying society, culture, but um, the people that are being manipulated by the devil are not our enemies. We don't need to pray for them, don't argue, quarrel, in humility, share the truth. The truth will set them free if they'll embrace it, and it's not your job to get them to embrace it you just share it in love okay now when a person does get saved this warfare 
for control of the mind doesn't end. Uh, in fact, in many ways, uh, Satan ram uh, ramps it up, his attacks. Um, Satan wants to keep us Christians um, thinking worldly thoughts that will destroy our relationship with God by keeping us brainwashed in the way, uh, his way of thinking. I mean, again, we've mentioned this all through, through our lives. Whenever you got saved, maybe it was in your early 20s, we'll say, for all the years prior to the day you got saved, you were being brainwashed incessantly by the devil through all kinds of things, TV, music, the media, you know, all that stuff. You didn't realize it. I didn't realize it. But the devil was, was filling our heads with, with things, thoughts, uh, that led to ideologies, belief systems, uh, stuff that was basically anti-God, anti-Bible. Look at this young generation. Look at the work he's done. I just read an article yesterday about how millennial, millennials are not going to church, but they are getting involved in the occult and witchcraft and all kinds of things. The devil has so influenced their thinking that God is bad. You know, Christianity, that's for old people. I want something new and hip, and I want power, and I want to control people and cast spells and... They're gravitating towards the occult, but let me tell you something. Satan never gives, but what he takes away tenfold. He never gives you a little power, but what he doesn't want to take away your life in the process. This is what we're facing. And uh, we see all these young people who have been taken captive by the devil. But the devil wants us to, he wants us, now that we're saved, he still wants us to think like unbelievers. He wants us to think like unbelievers. He wants us to think his way. Because if he can get us to think his way, well, he can keep controlling our lives. What is his way of thinking? Again, carnality, worldliness, anything that will take us away from the work of God and being a light to those in darkness. And because of it, what a Christian, listen, what a Christian needs to do from day one is to transform their thinking by reprogramming their minds with the word of God. Again, I'll read Romans 12, 2 where Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world, this world's way of thinking is the idea, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, how can a young man, how can a young, young woman cleanse their way by taking heed according to your word? How do you unbrainwash yourself? <laughs> you get into the word. He said, I, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Look, and again, we're still reviewing. God's word teaches us that godly living always flows from godly thinking, which, listen, is only possible by the renewing of your mind through the word of God. And I, again, I'm absolutely convinced that the reason so many Christians are still living worldly lives is because they're still thinking worldly thoughts. And why is that? Well, it's because they have not allowed the Word of God. They may come to church and maybe they read the Bible, but, you know, you can read the Word in kind of a robotic, disconnected way. You're reading the words on the page, but you're thinking, well, that's what I need to do as Christians, read the words on, a, on the page. When really, what God wants is to you to take that to your heart. That everything you read, you take to heart and you are praying, Lord, I want to be this way. I don't want to do these things. Lord, I want to love you more. I mean, you're reading the word and God is saying all this stuff. And what we're doing is we're reading it and we're praying. I want to hide it in my heart. I want God to energize it by his spirit so that I live it is the idea. But a lot of carnal, obviously, Christians 
Their minds are still conformed to this world's way of thinking, and they have not allowed them to be transformed by the renewing that comes from God's word. Remember what Jesus said with regard to the greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 8. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, the, the supreme commandment, is he, what he's saying. Guys, the modern church, for the most part, for the most part, has abandoned loving God with their minds and has gravitated almost exclusively to loving God and uh, seeking to relate to God through feelings. Feelings. Look, only God's word is the power to transform a life that's true, but sadly, the Christian church in general today wants to feel more than it wants to learn. And so mystical experiences have become the rage. These churches that have given themselves over to all these mystical experiences, it, it's drawing a lot of people, especially young people, because they have grown up in a culture where they want to feel rather than think. And that's a big problem, okay? But it's not just the mystical experiences like contemplative prayer and, and Christian yoga and stuff like that. Uh, it's also the feel-good churches. Again, if you want to feel, then you don't have to go to a, 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 go to a church that teaches mystical experiences to feel that way. You can just go to a church that is ultra-positive, you know, where you just always hear happy messages and feel-good messages and built around felt needs and so on. We see this going on quite a bit today in the church. Now, guys, that brings us to our study tonight, where Peter, in the context, now you understand, in the context of Christians not allowing the devil to control their minds any longer, now pivots and starts talking about God's word and the power it has not only to save us, but listen, also to transform our thinking, which will transform our lives for God. And so let's read verse 22, starting with, uh, Peter said, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Now, of course, here Peter is talking about God's word having the power to save a person. But then starting in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 primarily, he goes on to talk about the word's ability to grow us from infancy to maturity in the Christian life. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Peter said, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. But let's just focus on the last few verses of chapter 1 tonight. I want to break them down and kind of dissect them so that we really understand what Peter is saying. So verse 22 again, he said, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Let me stop there. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. He's saying, since you, have, since you have had your sins washed away, salvation, when you obeyed the truth of God, in other words, you accepted or received the gospel, 
brought to you by the Holy Spirit? Well, let me just stop there and say this. In other words, what Peter is saying is, since you're now a new creation in Christ, and the greatest evidence of the new birth is love, well, first and foremost, demonstrate that love to other members of the body of Christ. He said, in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Guys, we've talked about this before. Let me say it again. Our love for other Christians, other believers in Christ, is the litmus test. Is the litmus test to reveal whether or not we really love Jesus and are even born of the Spirit. Let me take you through a few scriptures. I won't have you turn to the first one. Uh, you know it. Spoken by Jesus in the upper room the night before the cross. He said to his disciples, John 13, verses 34 and 5, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know, all people of the world around you will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in the Greek, it's fervent love for one another. Turn to 1 John 2, because John seems to have taken the cue, a cue from the Lord Jesus, and he really gets into the idea of love in his first epistle. 1 John 2, verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Now, in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter talks about those who were in darkness, but God has uh, brought into his marvelous light. So the people in darkness are unsaved, people in the light, they're saved. So he who says he's in the light, he's saved, but hates his brother, is in darkness until now. He's not saved. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Chapter 3, verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of, of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder, murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then finally, chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment I have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Before you panic, because there's a few Christians you're not that crazy about, and, and so now you think John's talking to you, let me provide some context. Maybe that's a little that's good in a way. I don't know. We shouldn't be too comfortable, right? Look, John is speaking about religious unbelievers, which could and probably does include the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, who claim to know God, 
and yet we're actively trying to kill Christians in his name. And if that's true, then no doubt John had in mind what Jesus told his disciples the night before the cross. In John 16, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Guys, this is a reference to the persecution that will come from the Jewish community against uh, believers. The Jewish community that was opposing the truth, opposing the gospel, uh, that sought to kill the followers of Christ, thinking that they were serving God for doing so. Of course, Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, uh, fit into that category at one time. He really thought Christianity was a cult, and it was undermining God's true religion of Judaism. So he set himself as an enemy of the cross, and he went ahead and was pulling the Christians out of their houses bodily to drag them uh, into court to stand trial. And of course, he was on his way to Damascus to do that very thing with a group of disciples up there. He had heard about when the Lord met him on the road, knocked him down, uh, and revealed himself to Saul in a very powerful way, and he got saved right there and became Paul the Apostle eventually. But so at one time, Saul was one of these people who thought he was doing God a service by killing Christians. Verse 3 of John 16, And these things Jesus said they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So when your brethren, the Jewish community, persecutes you, and even tries to kill you. Understand, they do it because they don't know the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. So you don't, don't lose heart, that you don't think something weird is happening. I've told you what's coming, all right? Look, John is saying in First John, he talks about, you know, no man who hates his brother. And I think the context could very well be, and maybe it's primarily the idea of the Jewish a Jewish person, your Jewish brethren, persecuting you because you're a Christian now. Um, that might be what John has in mind primarily, that those Jews that, uh, that uh, hated Christians, because again, they thought Christianity was a cult maybe, and sought to persecute and, and kill. Um, and I'll tell you who they really hated. They really hated Jews who had become Christians. Oh, they hated Paul the Apostle with a passion. He was one of their champions at one time. And he got saved. Now he's the biggest traitor in the face of the earth to them. So they really wanted him out of the way. They, they hated him. But, but John is saying, look, uh, that's all an evidence that they don't know the Lord. Because if they knew the Lord, they would love his people. So the very fact that th these folks are persecuting you says, A, you're on the right side, and B, they're not. They're not. However, guys, this is also directed at professing Christians who, not just Jews, but any professing Christian who hates, strong word, other Christians to the point that they are involved in trying to kill them. And I'm thinking of the Roman Catholic Church, how they killed millions of Protestants uh, in the first few centuries of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, interestingly, in just a few days, October 31st, 2017, they will celebrate the 500 year of the Protestant Reformation, when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and launched officially what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, this may shock you, I'm not a Protestant. I'm a born-again Christian. 
okay? I mean, there's a lot of good things the Protestants did, a lot of things I don't agree with. Luther eventually got to a point where he was persecuting Jews or advocating persecuting Jews. So, you know, I, they protested something. I'm celebrating something, okay? The fact that Jesus Christ died for me, I am a born-again Christian. I, I'm not, you know, I don't go by any name except Christian because I follow Christ. But John says this proves that they don't know God. These Jews or anybody who claims to be a Christian um, and yet persecutes and kills God's people, the biggest persecutor of God's true people have been false Christians. But John says this proves they don't know God, they're still part of the world, and that, the, that they abide in death, uh, which means the wrath of God, judgment of God is still upon them because they don't love the brethren. Now, that is the context, guys, of 1 John, how religious unbelievers treat true believers in Christ. Listen, not how true Christians treat other true Christians, although, although that is definitely important and something Peter is driving home. We absolutely need to love each other as members of the body of Christ. How? Well, he tells us in verse 22, he says, Look, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently, with a pure heart. Now, it's interesting that Peter uses two different Greek words in his admonition for us to love one another as Christians. The first part of that sentence, insincere love of the brethren, this is the Greek word phileo. Love there is the Greek word phileo. And phileo is a word that denotes a friendship love, a friendship love, um, a reciprocal love. Hey, I love you. You love me. We're buddies. We're friends, that kind of thing, okay? It's a reciprocal love that involves mutual caring and kindness and overall speaks of the love that enjoys being with a person. In other words, mutual affection. Hang on to that thought. Mutual affection, a love that enjoys being with another person. The second kind of love that Peter speaks of when he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart, that word for love is agape. Or here the verb form agapao. This is a love, guys, that is typically associated with God, as in 1 John 4, 8, where it says that God is love, agape, and in John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved agapao, the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. Guys, this is a, this is a love that doesn't require feelings for it to be shown to others, as when Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, Matthew 5, 44. That stumbles a lot of Christians. Because, new Christians, I should say. Because they read that and go, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to love my enemies? I don't have, love them. I, I want to strangle them at times. They miss the point that the kind of love we're talking about, agape love, is not feelings-oriented. In fact, when Paul defines agape, in 1 Corinthians 13, every one of those ways he defines it are verbs. It's action, not feelings. It's action-oriented. This love, God's love, agape uh, love, was poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit the moment we received Christ as our Lord and Savior, Romans 5, verse 5. Uh, it's God's love. We can't manufacture it. We can't, it. It's not within us naturally. It's not natural love. It is supernatural divine love. And the only way for us to have it is if God himself lives within us. And that's what happened when you accepted Christ. The Spirit of God moved in, and he poured this agape love into you, and you now have access to it. doesn't mean you have to utilize it. We can still be selfish. 
We can still be carnal and so on. It's just that unbelievers can't love with God's love. Only Christians can do that, but we don't always do it, do we? We don't always do it. But again, guys, this is a supernatural love that can show kindness even to enemies because, again, it's not rooted in feelings. It's rooted in the will, listen, as we will to obey God's command to love others, even our enemies, regardless if we feel like it or not. Again, agape love is an attribute of God's nature, an attribute of God's nature who shows kindness even to his enemies, right? Turn to Matthew 5. Very familiar passage, but let me read it to you again. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Or in other words, that you may demonstrate your sons, daughters of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. But if you greet your brethren only, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? It doesn't prove that you have supernatural love in you. If you love the same way the earthly people love, right? Unsafe folks. Do not even tax collectors do so. Verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The idea is you shall be mature, and uh, that way you will, you will glorify your Father, who, who is perfect, uh, in heaven. Now, guys, here's what I believe Peter is admonishing us to do as fellow believers in Christ. First of all, that we all love each other as a family. That's the phileo love, okay? Remember, he uses the two kinds of love, right? Phileo and agape. Why did he do that? Why did he combine them together and, and, but use two different words? Here's what I believe he's telling us as Christians now. That first of all, we are to love each other, phileo, which means with kindness and, uh, and love, that, the kind of love that is um, affectionate, um, that we, as a family would, right? That we genuinely like each other, and like enjoy being around each other. Look, you can love other Christians agape. Okay? I mean, there are Christians that you will you will meet a need for, but you don't really have any affection for them. And that's better than nothing. It's better than nothing to another Christian has a need and you don't really like this person, but you meet the need because that's what God wants. Wonderful. I, I will tell you this, though. If you do that, you, if you go ahead and love them with God's love and, and maybe help them in some way because they need help or supply a need that they have, you will notice that feelings will come after. We wait for feelings to motivate. God says, you obey me, the feelings will follow. There have been people that I didn't really care for, but God opened the door because they had a need and I met the need. And all of a sudden, God began to work in my heart, and I began to have feelings for this person, you know? I began to have affection. I, I wanted to pray for them more. So Peter says, look, <laughs> it's great that you guys are meeting each other's needs. Hopefully, that's what's going on. I know here it is. But how about you like each other? Okay? I mean, you can... How many families, how many people in your family, maybe, you know, you love each other, but 
Sometimes you don't get along so well. You don't really like each other. That's sad. That's not how the family of God should be. We, we should genuinely like to be around each other. Now, that's not a problem for me because I love you guys. I love being around you guys. I'm closer to you than many of my own flesh and blood relatives. And I, I thank God for the family um, atmosphere that we have in our church. And I know there's a lot of churches that do, many that don't. And I'm just thankful that we have a family here that we do love each other. It's not that we just will meet a need here and there. We, we genuinely love to be around each other. I mean, you know, for this to become a reality, though, and I'm talking now in general terms of the church in general, for this to become a reality where Christians really love hanging out and being a family, well, we need to stop the gossip, the backstabbing, backbiting, uh, and thinking the worst of each other. You know, there's nothing worse than, and I've seen it in our church, we're not perfect, there's nothing worse than when I come to church and see Christians avoiding each other because, you know, they've had a falling out, and now they're too proud to humble themselves and work it out. Uh, it, it, it's sad to see it. It's uncomfortable. And if you have enough people that are doing that, it creates a toxic environment. The church no longer becomes a healing place where wounded and broken people can come and feel like they're bathed in God's love because they see it in all of you toward each other. We have to be careful that we don't let... And Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, Father, I pray that they might be one, even as you and I are one. That was his final request. You know, and who here is going to deny Jesus' final request? We need to humble ourselves, go to... But I wasn't wrong. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It only matters who's going to make it right. That's all that matters. Now, secondly, we're to love each other, agape, which is an unconditional love, the kind of love that God loves us with. Uh, and that means we look out for each other and help those brothers and sisters in Christ whenever they have a need. Again, this agape love is more action-oriented, more action-oriented. It, it looks for needs and seeks to meet needs, all right? Uh, again, we read 1 John 3, 16 and 17. Let me read it to you again of the NLT. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. We, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Very true. Uh, talk is cheap. God's love is action-oriented. It does. It works. It gives. I think Warren Worsby put it well when he said, and I quote, Not only is this love a spiritual love, but it is a sincere love, as Peter mentioned. It's unfeigned is the idea. We love with a pure heart. Our motive is not to get, but to give. There's a kind of success psychology popular today that enables a person to subtly manipulate others in order to get what he wants. If our love is sincere and from a pure heart, we could never use people for our own advantage. This love is also a fervent love. And this is an athletic term that means striving with all of one's energy. Love is something we have to work at, just as an Olympic contestant has to work at his or her particular skills. Christian love is not a feeling. It is a matter of the will. We show love to others when we treat them the same way God treats us. God forgives us, so we forgive others. God is kind to us, so we are kind to others. It is not a matter of feeling, 
but of willing. And this is something we must constantly work at if we are to succeed, end quote. Why do we have to constantly work at it? Because we are selfish by nature. We're selfish by nature. We want to get. We don't want to give so much. But God's love is all about giving. For God so loved the world that he gave, agape, his only begotten son. God's love is giving. It meets needs. All right, back in 1 Peter, verse 22 again. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, when Peter talks about us being born again, of course, he has in mind the words of Jesus, which Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John 3. If you turn there. Peter says, have you been born again? Well, obviously he has what Jesus talked about in John 3 to a man named Nicodemus, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Uh, After dark one evening, he came to speak to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Actually, what he's implying is we believe you're the Messiah. Verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can only produce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. When Peter said that we were born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, he has in mind the two births that Jesus talked about in John 3. In physical conception, the man's seed is corruptible. It is perishable. And even if it fertilizes the egg and a child is born, that child's life is subject to corruption and eventually death. However, and this is Peter's point, When um, it comes to the new birth, the seed is God's word, the gospel. And when it is received into a heart, it gives birth to spiritual life, which can never be corrupted, which will never be subject to death, and so on. James talks about us being born of the word in James 1, verse 18, when he said, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So the word of God. It's uh, the power to bring forth life if it's embraced. He talks in verse 23, says, The word of God which lives and abides forever. How many times in the history of the world did the enemies of God's word try to destroy it only to see it come back stronger than ever? One author said, and I quote, In AD 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian, demanded that every copy of the scriptures in in the Roman Empire be burned. He failed, and 25 years later, the Roman emperor Constantine commissioned a scholar named Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible at government expense. Wow. Another author says, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. Of course, we all know about Voltaire, 
the famous French atheist who died in 1778, he made that infamous prediction. He predicted that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the earth. He was a product of the Enlightenment, you know, and of course we're enlightened now. That religion is superstition for, you know, for people that are not very intelligent. Uh, he just saw that as the world was getting smarter and smarter, more enlightened, eventually people would throw off the shackles of religion and the Bible would disappear. Within 100 years of my death, the Bible will disappear from the face of the earth. Well, ironically, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his own printing press to produce thousands of copies of the Bible for distribution. I think God does that purposely just for a sense of humor. You know? Oh, really? Okay. Well, how about if I use your own printing press? And, of course, we can't talk on this subject without quoting one of my favorite quotes by H.L. Hastings on, the, on this very subject. Let me read it to you. He said, infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it, they die, and the book still lives, end quote. And guys, that's, a, that's basically what Peter is saying. Back to 1 Peter 1, again, verse 23, having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. When Peter says, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of God, word of the Lord endures forever. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. You have to understand the context. God made Israel many promises about the coming Messiah and the millennial kingdom. Most Jews lived for that, especially because as a nation they saw much persecution against the Jewish people. And yet God had promised them Messiah was coming, the kingdom was coming, right? And yet, you know how it is when you see nothing but the negatives you're trying to cling to a promise of God, but boy, everything looks contrary. How is God ever going to do this? The nation's about ready to be wiped out, and I'm holding on to these glorious promises of a glorious coming kingdom. Wow, I don't see it. And some of their faith began to waver. And then God said in Isaiah 40, he opens it up by talking about the messenger he would send that would come before the Messiah. And then he begins to talk about the kingdom age. God is renewing the promise. He's saying, look, I made you a promise. I'm going to keep it. My word endures forever. You might fail. Flesh comes and goes. People live and die. But my word will abide forever. You will see it. 
Maybe not in this life, but you will see it with your own eyes. Job said it, didn't he? He said, uh, I know my Redeemer lives. And even though I may not see him with these eyes, I know that someday in my flesh I'm going to see him. I'm going to be resurrected. And uh, the promises that he has made to me will all come to pass at that time. Guys, we're living in a time when it seems like the church is dying. And a lot of churches are. I saw a statistic a couple days ago. Mainline denominational churches are all dying. Evangelical churches are holding their own. We're not growing like crazy, but we're holding our own. You know what's growing? Synagogues in Islam. But when I read articles about millennials, how young people aren't going to church, and not they're not going to church, they're getting involved in the occult, witchcraft, and so on, it breaks my heart. And what it does is it causes me to crowd, God, please work. Please save these kids. I'll tell you, it, it, you know, sure, it looks like the church is dying. Don't you believe it for a second? In fact, God allows his church to go through periods like this. Why? To give us a heart to pray. Because we are so burdened and so desperate. We can't do anything. People are not coming anymore and young families aren't coming and we see what they're doing and how they're getting involved in all kinds of worldly things. And it breaks our hearts and we cry out, God, if you don't do something, nothing is going to happen. And God said, I will pour out my spirit on him who is what? Thirsty. Like water upon the dry ground. Sometimes the church has to go through very dry periods until it gets so thirsty it begins to pray like never before. And then God responds. That was the case of the Jesus movement, remember the 60s? The one that birthed Calvary Chapel? You talk about a, a, a decadent time uh, morally and socially in our country, and all of a sudden God began to work. Don't you think for a second Christians weren't praying. I mean, the whole culture looked like it was going to hell in a handbasket, and it was. But there were godly people who were praying. I'm convinced of that. And God listened. And at one point, God began to move. This is what we're praying for, that God would begin to move again in this generation, especially this generation of young people. God says, when I give you my word, it will never fade. It will never fail. It may look like, how can God ever bring this to pass? My word will never, you will fail, but my word will never fail. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, the word of the Lord certainly has endured. It has survived centuries of manual transcription, of persecution, of ever-changing philosophies, of all kinds of critics, of neglect both in the pulpit and in the pew, of doubt and disbelief, and still the word of the Lord endures forever. Guys, not only is God's word invincible, listen, it's also invaluable. I'll just read these to you. Psalm 119, verse 162. The psalmist said, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Guys, the word of God is more valuable than any earthly treasure. But listen, it will only enrich you if you treasure it and obey it. The problem today is, we don't value what has come too easily. We don't value what comes too easily. When Christians had to die 
to have a copy of the word in their lap. Or when men were persecuted and killed who wanted to translate the Bible into the common tongue of the people so that people could read the Bible for themselves. They wouldn't have to depend on the church to tell them what the Bible said. They could read it for themselves. That was the heart of the Reformation, by the way. Today, we haven't bled, fought, or died for God's Word at all. In fact, it's gotten so bad that if, if it's too chilly, they don't want to come to church. If it's too nice, they don't want to come to church. It's got to be just the right day to come to church. We can have as many Bibles as we want in a variety of translations. We can go online, read it anytime we want for free. What has happened? What, what has that done? That's caused people not to value God's Word. Whatever comes too easily is appreciated too lightly. Vance Havner, one of my favorite old Baptist preachers, he said, and I quote, I have read that years ago in that part of Africa where diamonds in the rough were plentiful, a traveler chanced on boys playing. Closer investigation revealed that they were playing marbles with diamonds. God forgive us today that we handle his treasures as though they were trifles and the coinage of the eternal as though it were play money. It is no time to play marbles with diamonds, unquote. Wow, I couldn't agree more. Look, let, let me just finish. We're talking about God's word, okay? Let me just finish talking a little more about God's word, okay? Not relating to what Peter is saying, but springboarding off of it. The Bible is a composite of 66 books written by 40 different authors from all walks of life. For example, Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military leader. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Daniel was a prime minister. Luke was a physician. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi. The Bible was written over a 1,600-year period from roughly 1,500 B.C. through 100 A.D. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written at different times. David wrote in times of war and adversity, Solomon in times of peace and prosperity. It was written in times of freedom and in times of slavery. It was written during different moods, some writing from the heights of joy, while others wrote from the depths of sorrow and despair. And any author, any writer will tell you that will, your mood will greatly affect uh, will have a great effect on the writings themselves. Its authors wrote on hundreds of controversial subjects. A controversial subject is one that would create opposing opinions when brought up and discussed. The biblical writers wrote about such things as the person and nature of God, the origin of the universe, and the fallen redemption of man. They wrote about sin, eternity, heaven, hell, and so on. All of these subjects, when mentioned, would be met with opposing views and opinions. Now, I'm reading this from an author who listed these things, and he said, look, try going to a coffee shop or onto a university campus and start asking people, well, what do you think about God? Uh, who is he? Uh, where did everything come from? Okay, what happens when a person dies? What happens then? You would get as many different opinions as people you talk to. That's how controversial subjects work. Everybody's got their own opinion, basically. He said the biblical writers wrote on literally 
hundreds of controversial subjects with absolute harmony and continuity from beginning to the end. In fact, guys, that is one of the most powerful proofs of its divine inspiration. The Bible may have been written through 40 different penmen, but it had only one author, the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle. It is a miracle. One unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation, God's redemptive plan for mankind, the Old Testament through the coming Messiah, the New Testament through the Messiah that has come. Geisler and Nix, in their general introduction to the Bible, put it this way. And I quote, In Genesis you have paradise lost, and in Revelation you have paradise regained. You can't understand Revelation without Genesis, and you can't understand Genesis without Revelation. It's all woven together so intricately, it's like a beautiful tapestry. It actually becomes one book with 66 chapters. One unfolding story from beginning to the end. F.F. Bruce Christian scholar, professor, and author had this to say, and I quote, No part of the human body can be properly explained outside the context of the whole body. So no part of the Bible can be properly explained or understood outside the context of the Bible as a whole, end quote. Guys, it fits together perfectly and intricately. One author said, think about it. Here was one man on one continent, in one society, one culture, one walk of life, one mood, writing about a controversial subject. At the same time, you have another man, another culture, another continent, another society, another language, another walk of life, different mood, writing about the same controversial subject, and when the two are brought together in God's word, there is absolute harmony, end quote. Guys, that is a miracle. That's a miracle. In fact, I think those, that quote came from Josh McDowell. And I remember listening to Josh McDowell years ago, and he was saying at that time him and Don Stewart had teamed up, and they were working together as apologetic, a couple of guys that were you know, uh, teaching all apologetics, uh, the proper defense of the Bible and so on. And uh, they were together one day in Josh's house, I believe, and they were working on something when the doorbell rings. Go to the door, and here's a book salesman. In those days, they used to send guys out to sell you books. Um, and he wanted to talk to them about the, um, the great books of the Western world. He had a whole series, okay? And he was trying to sell the great books of the Western world. So they invited the guy in. He spent five minutes talking to them about the great books of the Western world. They spent the next two hours talking to him about the greatest book. And here's what they said to him. You know literature. This is your job. What do you think would happen if you asked 10 people just one controversial question, one subject, controversial subject, you know, uh, same language, uh, same area they lived in, uh, same basic mood and so on, uh, but you ask them, you know, uh, these different people uh, about one controversial subject. What do you think the result would be? He said you'd have 10 different views. Then they said, you know what? The Bible it contains hundreds of controversial subjects from the origin of man, the destiny of man, who is God, where did the universe come from, and so on and so forth. It all comes together in one cover from Genesis to Revelation, and it comes together in perfect harmony and unity. There is no contradiction. Every writer agrees, and everything moves along in, in a progressive kind of a way until its completion. What do you think about that? He said, I think it's a miracle. And they led him to Christ right there. He realized this is a miracle. 
you know, people that know literature know this is a miracle. If they will take the time to listen with an open mind, and you can show them how the Bible is literally one unfolding story, God's redemptive plan for mankind, if, if, if they will listen with an open heart, I believe they'll receive Christ. It's, it's that powerful. Guys, the Bible is the only religious book in the world that speaks of the unknown with the same authority and confidence as it does the known things of history. The Bible speaks of future things with the same authority and confidence as in the case of fulfilled Bible prophecy, the same accuracy as it does of historical events. You know why? Because our God is outside of time, who knows the end from the beginning. And God said in numerous places, I think Isaiah 46 is one, I'm going to tell you things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you know that well, I'm God and this is my word, because only I know the end from the beginning. Only I can tell you future things and be absolutely right every time, because I'm not guessing. I know what's coming. Prophecy is one of the greatest evidences that God has given us that this is his book. It's his thumbprint on Scripture to authenticate that the book in your lap tonight is his book delivered supernaturally through the Holy Spirit, 66 books written through 40 different authors, but one author really, the Holy Spirit. The Bible has no equal, including the sacred writings of any other religion. I thought you might like this quote. Professor M. Montero Williams, former Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit, listen, who spent 42 years studying Eastern books and sacred writings, said in comparing them to the Bible, here's what he said, pile them, if you will, on the left side of your table, but place your own Holy Bible on the right side all by itself, all alone and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between the Bible and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs uh, the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever, a veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. Bottom line, the Bible is unique. I've been studying Eastern books for 42 years, and let me tell you this, they can't even come close to the Bible. It's God's Word. In other words, the Bible is unique. It stands alone when compared to the other sacred writings of the religions of the world. Now, let me end with a true story, which I've shared with you in the past. It's one of my favorite stories. Again, it's a true story that comes from the life of a man by the name of Robert Dick Wilson, a man who truly treasured God's Word. Robert Wilson was born in 1856. He graduated from Princeton University at the age of 20 and went on to earn a Ph.D., he then did further postgraduate work in Germany for two years where he was exposed to the school of higher criticism. Now, this was a group of German scholars who made it their mission in life to discredit the Bible at every turn, pick it apart, tell you it wasn't really God's word, and so on. A total tool of the devil. At that time, though, a lot of people were jumping on that bandwagon. Well, Wilson found himself going to, you know, a graduate school or postgraduate school and he comes across these guys. And as the story goes, one day, uh, as he hears this professor spouting all this stuff about the Bible, how it can't be trusted, and Moses didn't write the first five books, it was five different priests and gave him different letters and so on, all this stuff, he was so brokenhearted, he went back to his dorm room, and he got on his knees, he was only 25 years old, and he knelt by his bed and prayed, he said, Lord, if you'll give me another 45 years, I will devote the first 15 years to learning every language the Bible was written in. 
I will spend the next 15 years studying the Old Testament itself, and the last 15 years I will spend presenting my findings for the truthfulness of your word. God answered Robert's prayer and gave him another 49 years, during which he mastered, listen, 45 languages. He not only became an expert in Hebrew and its kindred tongues, but he learned all the languages into which the scriptures had been translated down to the year A.D. 600. While he was still in college, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. He had memorized the entire New Testament in Hebrew, along with portions of the Old Testament, and it was said that he could recite the New Testament in Hebrew from memory without missing a single syllable. He studied the text of the Old, of the Old Testament meticulously, looking at every consonant. Remember now, the Hebrew language had no vowels. 250,000 consonants he studied meticulously. He made a thorough scientific investigation of the Old Testament text as compared to other writings of antiquity. Dr. Wilson then spent the remaining years writing down and teaching the results of his long research. He became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Would to God, Princeton had some Robert Dick Wilsons today. He became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, where he spent many years defending the Bible, defending it against all comers. <laughs> Bring it on. Nobody could refute this man. He was, he was brilliant beyond comprehension. Years defending the Bible against all comers, as well as turning out students that had a strong foundation for their faith, who trusted and treasured the Word of God. The story is told that when Professor Wilson was an old man now, probably close to retirement, one day after he finished teaching, lecturing uh, a class, uh, a young student raised his hand and said, uh, Professor Wilson, he said, what is the greatest truth you've ever learned in all your studies of the Bible? The old scholar stopped, took his glasses off, his tears were streaming down his cheeks. He said, the greatest truth I have ever learned in all my years of studying the Bible is this, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I thank God that God does give some to the church who are so brilliant. They can do the work and prove from history and from literature how unique the Bible is that it stands alone. I'm also thankful that an intellectual giant like Robert Dick Wilson was able to take what he had learned and, and just succinctly say, you know what, I can go into all the wonderful truths I've learned over all the years I've studied the Bible. I can get into the deep, profound things of God, but you know what doesn't matter? The only thing that matters is that you understand that the Bible teaches from cover to cover that God loves you, that he sent his son to die for you, and Jesus wants you to, to receive him, that he might save you and take you to be with him in heaven someday for all eternity. This is all that matters, what Professor Wilson was saying. And guys, this is something that we must never, ever forget. Don't lose that childlike faith. Don't ever lose that childlike faith that simply says, you know, I may not be a biblical scholar, but I know this. When I read my Bible, the one thing that comes through is how much God loves me. 
I know it because Jesus told me how much he loved me, and he went to the cross to prove it. So by God's grace, we will pick up our studies in 1 Peter, I think at this point after the first of the year. So uh, I expect you to memorize the book by then. Well, read it a few times at least. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces way down, Lord, divides the soul from the spirit. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for, well, men like Robert Dick Wilson and women, scholars who, Lord, love you and have devoted their lives in proving how incredible your word really is. But, Lord, help us to just get our minds around the simple things, which is primarily how much you love us. That we might, Lord, never forget that. When the devil comes trying to condemn us, that we just look to the cross and say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I know Jesus loves me. He died for me. The Lord knew what he was getting himself into. He knew me before he ever called me. And now that I belong to him, he knows all the times I'm going to blow it. But he loves me. And when I do blow it, I confess and he forgives me. And I just thank you, Lord, for that truth. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.